we wanted to make the move not as a retirement piece, but to really establish ourselves in the community as functioning, you know, professionals in some way. So the time was right. Both of our, David and I are both the youngest kids in our families. All of our family was gone. Everybody in my family passed away. There was nothing really to keep me in Cincinnati at that point. Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired, and please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am just delighted to welcome Andy Ruffner to the My Fourth Act podcast. Andy has in many ways lived many people's dreams. After several decades of living and working in his hometown, Cincinnati, Andy picked up in his early 50s with his now husband, David Weaver, and settled in a South Florida beach town. Andy left behind friends and a history of compelling work in healthcare, training, counseling, and years of teaching at the college level. Unlike many corporate moves that are shaped by a work opportunity, Andy moved to Hollywood, Florida for a new way of life. Since 2019, Andy has served as Director of Education for Fort Lauderdale's World AIDS Museum, and he's actively exploring many other ways of serving his new community in Hollywood, where I also live. So hello, Andy. Hello. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be able to do this. It's uh, quite a, a group of people that I am joining in this, and I am so happy to be able to do this with you. I am as well, and uh, you are somebody who I respect and admire in our community. We live probably a mile away from each other. Before we get to, and let me say this, how we end up in sort of a dream destination, you know, we're almost case studies of how you do that and the fact that you can. But when you were a young boy or teenager growing up, and mom and dad or somebody asked you, who do you want to be when you grow up, Andy? What was in your thoughts? You know, uh, I think right off the bat, the first thing that comes to mind is I wanted to be David Cassidy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so from the Partridge family, that was so that I really loved. I kind of wore out the album. I think my parents were very sick of it. I really liked to watch TV when I was a kid and I liked a lot of different shows. And I, I think I really, I really did want to be on TV or something. Initially, uh, I had this sort of like idealistic view of that that was how life was supposed to be that way. So um, I think I held on to that for a long time. And then later on, knew I wanted to go into some kind of psychology, psychiatry, maybe go to medical school, et cetera, uh, but always around mental health and psychology. Um, you know, when I was being real that I wasn't going to actually be on TV. <laughs> I, I have to chuckle when you mentioned David Cassidy, because I remember him 
And when I think of David Cassidy, I think of the hair, right? There was long hair and Andy Ruffner at this stage in your life, you're a bald fellow. So right. your, your hair is the opposite of David Cassidy, right? Right, right. And um, I thought he had really great hair when I was a kid, but now I know better. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, that is that is kind of an ironic thing that um, I, I don't have hair at all now. So Now, I, I usually don't ask my guests about so the degrees they got, but I was struck by the fact that you have a graduate degree in community counseling. And my yeah. first reaction was, I don't know what that is. So can you explain to us what community, because I think a lot of your passions are aligned with what you actually studied. So could you explain that to us? Yeah, I'm not really sure why the University of Maryland decided to call that that major, add the community to it. I think the thinking was that it was based on this idea that not only were you doing individual helping of, you know, working with individual people, but that it was in this larger community context and how you were developing around that. So I think, think that was what they were thinking. And it certainly was a good fit for me, um, even if I didn't intentionally go after that to, to find that. I actually ended up at Maryland because someone I knew from the University of Rochester, I was where I'd gone to undergrad she had taken a job at Maryland and I was miserable in my first year out of undergrad and I had a helping job where I was working in a group home for emotionally disturbed teenage boys. And it was just horrendous. Uh, I was complaining to her and she said, well, why don't you come to Maryland and get your graduate degree? And I said, oh, okay. So that's what I did. I took a job at University of Maryland in the residence halls, and that's how I financed the degree and, and yeah. got me. So when I came to this country, I'm German. I, I lived in the Washington, D.C. suburbs. So University of Maryland, I know exactly where that is. And the question that came up for me, because you, and this is a question that I think many people grapple with, you know, mm -hmm. because you could have just said, oh, let me stay in D.C. and live here and work here. But you went... You went home to Cincinnati, where you are from, uh -huh. and this is a big question for many people. Do we go home, or do we spread our wings and go to other, possibly more exotic places? What took you back home to Cincinnati? Well, the joke I always tell people about that is that uh, when I was a kid, you know, the bicentennial uh, was in 1976. Mm -hmm. I was 11 years old. My mom and dad took us on a trip up to the D.C. area, and I just fell in love with it. And I thought it would be the coolest place to live. And I had this dream of living as an adult in the D.C. area. And then the joke I always tell people is, but that dream was before I drove a car or paid rent. <laughs> so I was just floored by how expensive it was um, yeah. and how crowded it was. I was in a relationship at the time, and my partner was also from Cincinnati, and he really didn't like living there in D.C., in Maryland. We lived in Greenbelt right next to the campus. And uh, I mean, it was a great place for a couple of years, but I, I just realized I, I would never be able to have the kind of life that I wanted to have in terms of having a home and 
some little bit of land around it, et cetera, I wouldn't be able to afford that in D.C. as a social work counseling type. Um, So we moved back. Well, so you've done this wonderful variety of of things professionally. I want to just just mention a few of them and then want to ask you some questions related to it. Before you came to Florida, you were the project director of an early intervention program at the University of Cincinnati Department of Emergency Medicine. Mm-hmm. And when I read it, it sounds like a community outreach program. You had worked for Blue Cross Blue Shield as a training team lead when you were younger. I'm also, because I, I was an adjunct college professor for a while as you were, but I'm I'm struck by the by the range of stuff you taught. You taught counseling, education, sociology. So you're like this Renaissance man, man of Cincinnati. This is how I see you. But just indulge this exercise because I think many of us go through this. There are moments when we go, this is why I'm here and this is why I love what I'm doing. But we also get to those moments like, why the hell am I doing this and get me out of here? So if you think of the totality of your, let's focus on your professional life in Cincinnati. What, What are some moments where you go, this is why I love what I'm doing or this is why I love my life here? Yeah, you know. When I went to graduate school and all through high school and college, I really did picture myself as a therapist sitting in an office, seeing client after client, you know, with a 50 minute hour. And I thought I wanted to do that 40 hours a week. And I very quickly realized I didn't really want to do that. So when I started out, because I had worked with kids, and if you're a guy and you have a social or counseling background and you want to get a job, you can walk right into any job that has working with kids. So I, I had to, um, I worked in a outpatient drug and alcohol program doing assessments and family counseling with kids that had hit the juvenile court system. And, uh, I only did that for about a year and a half, but it was a lot. And then from there, I got more involved and in, went to work for a hospital-based employee assistance program, which allowed me to see lots and lots of clients. And it was great experience, but 40 hours a week of it, you did not want to be client number five in Andy's day. It's very hard work uh, if you're doing it, I think, if you're doing it correctly. Yeah. You really have to be very conscious of what you're doing with the client. And it just over time, I didn't feel like it was the it was the right thing. So I, I sort of moved out of that and got into doing more training and consultation work uh, with the employers that had contracts with this program and going out into companies and um, doing presentations about mental health or the company, you know, brown bag lunches, those kinds of things. Um, managing change and transition, that was a big one because there was a lot of layoffs in Cincinnati due to the peace dividend in the 90s. We had a aircraft engines at GE manufacturing. It was a huge plant, um, and the hospital had a contract with them, and they, they downsized very dramatically. And so we had to do a lot of that kind of stuff, and I found that I really liked that. And so it had a lot of flow to it, you know, that I 
as I look back on it now, it all kind of makes sense about how it all developed. But while I was going through it, I just, a lot of the changes that I made were based on wanting more flexibility, more leisure time (laughs) and that type of thing, rather than it being this sort of career hunger. And then, but as it all played out, it really did organize itself so that it just sort of fit. And let me test something. You used one of my favorite words in that phrase. You said it it had a lot of flow to it. Uh Uh, This is what I hear when I hear the word word flow, because it has two meanings to me. One, everything happens effortlessly and with full involvement or engagement. But what I'm also hearing from you is that you valued flexibility, unpredictability, not doing the same thing every day. Are those are both of those things true for you? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I really do enjoy that. And I think I'm more, more aware of that and more comfortable saying that today than I would have been, say, 10 years ago about myself. But I, I think that that's that's been a constant in my professional life. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of, I think our listeners, especially if they're in the fourth act, I've learned people have worked full time for a long time. They don't want to do it anymore, but they like the idea of doing something. Mm -hmm. Often it can mean consulting, using our learned skills, but using them a different way. And you did for a while, you left full-time employment. You did, consulting you had a uh-huh. consulting company in Cincinnati and then you went back to 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 getting a full-time role many people are also terrified of consulting so mm-hmm. what what was it like for you to say wait a minute my next my next gig in life is I don't want to work for somebody I want to consult is that part of the flexibility or how, how, where did that come in Totally about the flexibility, because what happened, actually, um, I did have a job. I worked for uh, Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield, and it was a weird little foray I made into the world of IT, actually. I uh, was a training supervisor. I managed a team of trainers to train up on a new case management software that Anthem had developed for itself. And it was across three different states. So it was a really weird job for me to do, but I was wanting more money. That was kind of the place to go. I'd been doing a lot of work with managed care companies, et cetera. So what happened is it was Y2K. So we were getting ready to go into Y2K and my friends and I, uh, my partner, at the time, and my friends, we decided that we wanted to ring in Y2K in Rome. I wasn't allowed to take vacation because we all had to be ready for whatever was going to happen to our computer systems for Y2K. So I was walking my dog down in this business district that was next to my home in Cincinnati, and I saw this office space for rent sign. And I went in, I literally went into the building. The The guy that owned the building was, he had, was a tailor. He had a shop on the first floor of the building and the, the office upstairs was an old apartment. It was a really one bedroom apartment that had French doors into this living room. 
And the rent was really reasonable. And I figured out that I could afford to do this. And I was already teaching part-time on the side. So I thought, this will be enough uh, to get started. So I got in touch with a friend of mine, and we opened up a counseling and consultation practice because I thought I could I could swing it. So it was a really lean, <laughs> it was a really lean first year. And I did a mix of doing therapy. I had, I don't know, I probably saw about six people a week doing therapy. And then I was looking for different consulting gigs. And then I finally got a huge consulting gig with a hospital system to do a training on everybody in the system, all the employees of the system on professional boundaries and patient care. And that's sort of how that all evolved. So what was going to be just this freelance sort of corporate gypsy kind of life that I sort of envisioned for myself ended up being one major, major contract that ran for almost two and a half years. What I appreciate about the story, there are many things, but the sometimes a change in our lives is triggered by something simple like, oh, this would be a great office. I like this and I can afford it. So it was, it seems almost that's not the right place to start, but in other ways, it's the perfect place to start, right? It, right. Yeah. If worst case scenario, I'd be out the money for the nice furniture I buy, you know. <laughs> and, So it worked out for a long time and then until it didn't. The reason I stopped doing it is because I decided to go back to school um, and work on a doctorate in sociology. And so that's what got me out of it and then wandered into this other job at the university that sort of took over my life. (laughs) So I want to bring the conversation to how you got to South Florida. And I want to set it up this way. When I tell people that I live in the South Florida beach town, I would say every other person and I travel a lot would say, oh, I want to do that sometime. You know, I'm tired of the cold winters. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of that. When this happens, then I will also move to Florida. And you were I moved to Florida when I was 48. You were a little older than I I was in your life. I'm older than you now, but in terms of your life story. But I think we both didn't move here to retire. That's so the old Florida cliche. We moved here to start something new. How did the idea of living in Florida start? And how long did it take for you to get from the idea to saying, darn it, I think I'm going to do this? It's a pretty old idea, I think, for me. What happened is that I had a good friend that lived down here in Hallandale, and he had this beautiful condo right on the intracoastal that looked out onto where the diplomat is now. I watched them build the diplomat when we would come down and visit him. And so for our non-Florida listeners, the diplomat is a famous old hotel in Hollywood. It has had different iterations but right. it's, it's a landmark in, in Hollywood Beach. Yeah. yeah, architecturally, it's it's a, and my friend was um, the head of the design school at University of Cincinnati, and he had retired. And so getting to watch this building go up, and it was it's a very dramatic building. But like many people in our area, 
there's a big headache in Hollywood where federal where US one crosses Hollywood Boulevard. There's a, a traffic circle. And, you know, we Americans can't handle a traffic circle. Um, it's very, very stressful for people. So we cut through this neighborhood that I'm living in now called the lakes, um, Hollywood lakes. And I just couldn't believe how beautiful it was. And it was, I've always had a really soft spot for pedestrian areas, you know, being able to live in an area where I can walk out of my house and go to dinner or go to a movie, or in this case, also go to the beach. And I just couldn't believe how nice this neighborhood was and how reasonable it was in price at the time. So I, I started, you know, sort of pining over it almost 20 years ago and uh, looked around a lot of other types of communities and up and down the coast and trying out different things. And David also, my husband, he also loves the beach. So we started looking in earnest. Um, it just it was sort of like I joke that an alarm clock went off when I was 50 and, you know, it's, it's time to go to Florida. But like you, we wanted to make the move not as a retirement piece, but to really establish ourselves in the community as functioning, you know, professionals in some way. So the time was right. Both of our, David and I are both the youngest kids in our families. All of our family was gone. Everybody in my family passed away. There was nothing really to keep me in Cincinnati at that point. And David's job was a national job, so he could move. It didn't matter because he worked from home. A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the My Fourth Act Mastermind Groups, where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. So the Lakes, which is a beautiful neighborhood where you live. I live in an adjacent neighborhood, and I love your neighborhood. I love mine for different reasons. So what I'm hearing, it was like, it was a long, slow seduction and you kept coming back to it. I want to ask this question because we're talking about the importance of place and how place calls us, right? Uh-huh. And the beauty of getting older is that we can make choices more around place than around career, right? Which is what you did. But Hollywood, which is the city we're talking about, is a wedged in between two bigger known places, Fort Lauderdale to the north. Miami and Miami Beach to the south. And uh, Fort Lauderdale, especially gay men often go there because it's Wilton Manors. It's a very gay identified city. Miami Beach and Miami has a lot of history. It's Cosmopolitan International. And Hollywood for a long time no longer was this little somewhat forgotten sleepy beach town in between. Did you consider other cities or was your heart really set on exactly what the lakes had to offer? 
pretty much pretty much hard set on the lakes but um you know we went and looked in other places we went to savannah georgia um Mm -hmm. and uh looked at houses with a real estate agent um we also looked at charleston and i didn't really have any interest in any other city in florida other than here and i didn't we didn't want to be in either we looked at neighborhoods to compare but i really think for me some of the draw for this is i'm from originally a small town outside of cincinnati and we lived in town it was a, little, a farm town but we lived in the town and you know, again lots of walking and i spent a lot of time there with my grandmother growing up in the summers and um i think that was the, the draw for this is that it was it felt like a small town and it really does a lot of times i joke with a lot of people that it's like mayberry in a way <laughs> um, it is hollywood has a small town feel to it even though we're we have 160 170,000 people but it doesn't feel that way right no yeah yeah and it's yeah so I really do feel, you know, this, this was a major thing for us, a major accomplishment in our, in, in our relationship to, to come here and sort of realize this dream that we had had. And I think that makes both David and me feel really good about our lives and how, how they worked out. Um, No, no, my understanding is, and, I want to probe a little bit. You were early fifties, and you you moved without having job security, right? And that's a leap that can be terrifying to some people. To really, you know, and I want to frame it as this was a lifestyle choice. It wasn't yes. a career choice. What kind of thoughts or feelings did you have around giving up what I assume was a fairly secure job for living in this enchanted neighborhood that you'd always pined for? But you didn't have a job. How did that play out for you? Well, it was really it was really bizarre because I had been working in this public health prevention program that was in a hospital emergency department in Cincinnati. And three or four years before I left the job is when the opioid epidemic hit Ohio. Yeah. And it was horrible the effect that it had and it took me back all the way to the first counseling job that i had in the drug and alcohol rehab and just the difficulty in working with these patients and trying to to intervene and it it really wore me out and so i was really ready to not do anything with that anymore and i thought i'm really done with hiv in terms of working in HIV, because I've been working on it. Um, I had been around it my whole adult life. Yeah. I'd lost two partners to HIV, one in 1991 and then one um, in 2006, uh, just before I went to work for the university or right at the beginning of me working for the university. And so I never really thought I was in even though I was in these two relationships and I lived through all this stuff, I never really thought I was part of it. I was part of the history or the story and neither of them really wanted to really have a lot of public discussion about HIV. Yeah. So 
I got to this point in the job where I just felt like I don't need to do this anymore. Yeah. And like I said, it, it sort of worked out with these other things that the loss of my, my family of origin and, you know, David, we had just been through death after death after death for three or four years. And I just thought, well, let's go, let's go see what happens because at least it'll be beautiful. And, uh, so that's what I did. And I really, I really thought at that point that I would like to get a job in a plant nursery is what I really wanted to do. Yeah. And then I, I kind of wandered into back into HIV a little bit, because once you work in HIV, you kind of get ruined for other careers because of the brutally frank conversations that you end up having to have to be able to, to work on this. And that's when I, I started volunteering with a planning council for Ryan White services. It's the Ryan White program is, uh, an insurance program to make sure it's a safety net for folks who are living with HIV if there's no other health insurance. So I kind of volunteered my way back in and then was just networking with someone who happened to be the new executive director for the World AIDS Museum and I ended up there. But so I want to dig some more because what I'm hearing when you're saying is I wanted to get out of it, but then I was volunteering. There's a part of you clearly that's that loves to be of service in that world. Am I hearing that correctly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's true. I definitely. Now, the, the, the World AIDS Museum, it, it's an interesting and wonderful name. And again, I, I've been HIV positive since 88 and, and healthy, thank goodness. But I've lived with this my whole life. Mm-hmm. And, and my thought around it is younger generations from me do not remember what happened or what it was like. So the idea of a museum makes sense to me. And mm-hmm. I was startled to hear that that existed in Fort Lauderdale. But would you give us a sense of the sort of work or the mission of the museum and what you do in education there? It is a really interesting and important place. I think there's sort of like, there's sort of a family of these kinds of museums. Uh, you know, the National Holocaust Museum would be another example. Cincinnati, we had the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center mm-hmm. and to really chronicle things that had happened. And I think a lot of people, when they hear it, they're sort of taken aback. Um, you know, when I say I work at the World AIDS Museum and Educational Center, they're kind of like, well, what? You know, who would do that? Um, who would go to that? And the main mission of it is to chronicle this history and really help people understand not only the loss factor and the stigma, which really continues to fuel the pandemic worldwide of of HIV. I mean, it's the stigma is what keeps us from getting anywhere. And, you know, the numbers don't go down. We it's just so there's this whole thing about, you know, those who don't remember the past or condemned to relive it or, you know, yeah. I'm not saying that right. But um, and I think that that's the really important work of the museum. So like one of the really cool things that happens at the museum, there's a professor at Nova in the medical school in optometry. 
Again, and Alba is a prominent university for our non Floridians here in Broward County, where right, where right. Fort Lauderdale and Hollywood are. Just to create some context. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So at Nova Southeastern um, University, this professor sent his entire clinical practice class to the museum. They had to come and visit the museum and then write a paper about it, which I thought was really wonderful. And I wish more physicians would do that because there's so many pieces to the story of HIV AIDS that help inform a lot of things in medicine that we don't even realize. So for instance, universal precautions in terms of gloving up, we didn't do that pre-1985. Yeah. That wasn't standard clinical practice, but it is now. A lot of patient rights things that come up came up from the work of activists, of people who were living with HIV, who who said, this is how we want to be treated. It sort of launched this whole patient rights movement. So there's all these great things that I think people can learn from it. And we do all kinds of different programs to help people understand what the experience has been and to, you know, the, the tagline for it is document, remember, and empower. Yeah. I think the empowering thing is, is really incredible. And it's, it's, it's one of the great things about working there because you can see it happening. You can see people feeling that. You know, you, you just a minute or two ago used the phrase loss and pandemic. And my first thought went to COVID and a million people dying and pandemic and the current modern context. But it also makes me think of the many differences and also the parallels, right? And uh, Mm a global pandemic that we've been going through. There's so much we could talk about (laughs) just about the World AIDS Museum. But in the spirit of the fourth act, you've been there since... 2019, and and I understand you're about to embark on another professional transition where um, you're going to continue to work with with the World AIDS Museum in a more consultant way and go back to your consultant days, Mm -hmm. which to me, as as you're in your late 50s now, as you chart your life, makes sense to me. But can you help our listeners understand your thinking process around I hear flexibility and freedom, but I don't want to impose that on you. Right. Yeah. So that's definitely a piece of it. But I really am committed to Hollywood, honestly. And I really want to get more involved in my community here uh, to help try to preserve what I perceive to be a way of life here um, that is somewhat threatened by development and not necessarily not that all the development is bad but thinking about you know how can i get more involved in helping the city and really realize a lot of its potential it's got a lot of potential but it could easily be ruined <laughs> by Well, Hollywood is going through the classic tension between the need to develop, but without destroying what's so special about it. And how how to figure that out is 
there are conflicts, debates, and disagreements, and, and it's it's and especially many of us don't want to see what's happened in some of the neighboring cities, right? So we're right. conscious of that. What are some specific ways in which you see yourself getting more involved in the community that can help shape the future of a of a place that you've loved for a long time, even way before you came here? Yeah, I um I think what I'd like to work on is helping people to see what it is that makes this such a great place um, in terms of I've been doing a lot of work on oral histories at the museum. Yeah. So in a similar way, I think that's something that can be done here to really make people fall in love with Hollywood again, or maybe for the first time. Uh, we've got a 100 year anniversary coming up in a few years for the city. And I think that's a real opportunity to highlight what a great place it is. Um, and I think that the whole, the whole thing here, I think is really fascinating in terms of the way the community has developed over time. And this whole dilemma, like you said, of balancing, keeping what's special here, but also growing it. What I'm looking to do is to help work with the Chamber of Commerce. Got involved in Leadership Hollywood last year. I did that program, which is a nine-month leadership program that you learn about yourself. You do team a team service project, and you learn all these things about the city. And I think that's where I'd like to put myself, is, is in some kind of a role that... No helps people to articulate and get this this message out about what makes it great and that i think will increase civic engagement nice. so thinking about you know can we help train people to be able to serve on community boards and those kinds of things or or to run for public office um here in hollywood i do not want to run for office myself but i do want to contribute to the life of the city because I want to keep it great. So I'm, I'm having a hard time. It's a bit of a jump, but I, I really want to concentrate on that. Uh, and I feel like I've done enough with the HIV side that I can turn toward this now. Um, I appreciate how you're connecting some of your work to the ways in which you want to be helpful in the city and the connections are pretty obvious to me. I, I just want to take you to a personal question because uh, you and your husband, David Weaver, who you mentioned repeatedly, mm -hmm. you moved here together, you started in your life, but you actually got married here just a little over two years ago mm -hmm. in the lakes. I've seen there's a beautiful photo of <laughs> the moment and the ceremony and uh, the location where you got married. I've driven by it so many times. Uh -huh. I know this spot really well. I'm curious. Had you planned to get married when you moved here? Did that emerge out of the journey of making a big change together? How did that come about? Well, that's really interesting. I don't think either of us were really that hot on the idea of getting married or felt like that it was really important for me. I think some of my own hesitation about it was after losing 
two partners, mm-hmm. I kind of just felt like it didn't make any sense to do it. And it was sort of, it felt false to me. Either you are committed or you're not. And I was. So what happened for us is that, honestly, uh, George Floyd, this is going to sound really bizarre, but during the lockdown and everything, and then seeing that moment, yeah, George Floyd, and the way that the reactions went with that, and just the rhetoric that was starting to go around, we thought, we better do this because it might go away. And it's, it's something that it just seemed like the right time. And then the other thing that I joke about is we probably also watched too much Hallmark <laughs> during the <laughs> lockdown, but it just seemed like it, it just sort of came to us that, that this was the right thing to do. And I, um, I'm glad that we did. Um, but I really don't think it changed anything for me and my thinking about it, nor did it for David, because I very much understand and feel like I can make a commitment without that. Yeah. That's so, so, so I just so appreciate the way you said that. Yeah. Here's a question yeah. I ask every guest. I'm curious, based on and I think as we're listening to you, we get a sense that that you've um You've experienced a bunch of loss in your life, both with your partners and family. You're in a wonderfully committed relationship. You're in uh, a town you've been wanting to live in for a long time, and you made that happen. Based on what you know now, if you had a chance to whisper some advice into the ears of um, younger Andy, not to change anything in his life, but but what have you learned that you would want him to know about life? Wow, that's, you know, that's, that's a tough question. I mean, I don't, I don't want to say that I feel like it's something like, don't worry about the future. You know, things will work out. Whatever whatever happens um which is funny because when i was a little kid i uh used to love to sing at the piano with my mom mm-hmm. and our big song was que sera sera <laughs> uh, i don't think it gets any gayer than that but it really i i think that that really is true and that would be the advice that i would give to myself because you know i'm kind of a worrier and about what the future is going to hold and you know you just can't you can't predict what it will be i mean it's and it's it's whatever it is it's going to happen so stop worrying about it as we wrap up first of all thank you for the gift of this conversation but i we just scratched the surface of the wonderful work of the world aids museum it's important work. So if anybody's curious and wants to learn more about the work you and your colleagues are doing there, where would you like to direct them? We have a website. It's the worldaidsmuseum.org. And uh, we were having trouble with it yesterday. It was down. But uh, 
it's got a lot of great information on it and it's a work in development and they can also visit the museum in person if they're here in Fort Lauderdale. We're open Monday through Friday from 11 to 5 right now. Um, We'll be expanding into some Saturday hours, I think, after the new year. But I really encourage people to to have a look at it because the the great thing, we're in an incredible building. It's a, a cultural hub. It's called ArtServe um, here in Fort Lauderdale that houses another museum, the Stonewall National Museum and Archives, as well as other arts organizations. So there's this really great cross-section of experiences that people can have when they come to to see us in the building. Um, What ends up happening is that people who didn't mean to come to the World AIDS Museum kind of wander in and then they start reading and seeing the exhibits and uh, the main thing of the museum is sort of a chronology. And then they realize all these things that they had never known before about it. So that's been a really great thing. So I would encourage people to, even if you're not gay or if you don't have HIV or have been around HIV, there's an incredible story there. If you let yourself check it out. Thank you so much, Andy, and continue to enjoy your bike rides to the beach, okay? All right. Thank you. Bye-bye for now. Bye. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us. Give us a review. And let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.